This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Micah Blanc, episode 135. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Blanc. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here. Today on the show, I have Adam Adams. He uh, has a similar time that I had. He really started investing in, in 2005, got into apartment buildings in 2007, uh, kind of had a, a you know, run-in with the recession, kind of set him back a little bit. And then he got going again in 2008 as a manager. And then 2015, he really got into it. He's done a bunch of single-family flips and tax liens and that kind of stuff. And today he has over 100 units. He's working a lot more. He's a podcaster and he's the organizer of Colorado's most active real estate group. And the podcast is Creative Real Estate Podcast. So really, really fascinating guy. Great story. And what I love about this episode is we get into how to create your own meetup. He's got six meetup hacks that he's going to talk about. Really awesome episode. Let's get right into it. Here's Adam Adams. Adam, welcome to the show today. How are you? Hey, I'm excited to finally have you on. Another multifamily influencer in the space. It's taken a while because we're so important people. Right. And so I'm glad we're, we're finally here. So for those of you who don't, who don't know you, just uh, give us a, a brief background. Obviously, we're going to drill into your story a little bit and find out how exactly you got to where you got today. Just, just give a, a, a brief background on it. Okay. Uh, my dad made me get into real estate. He was always a multifamily. Well, he did multifamily on his own. And then he also did some storage units on his own. And I grew up that way, thinking it was normal for everybody's dad to be a dork and be investing in <laughs> real estate. And my dad used to say, hey, you've got to save 10%. You've got to put 10% aside, pay yourself first. You've got to invest 10%. And I just kept thinking like, yeah, yeah, maybe like when I get old and boring, I'll start doing that. And then in college, I did my first multifamily. I actually was the property manager because I thought to myself, I need to get into multifamily. So I, I became a property manager first. We repositioned uh, 18 Plex and the owner made some serious money, well over a million dollars. And I was just thinking, it took one year for me to work hard and him to make a million dollars. I got to get into this business. So in 2008, I bought my first one, got hit by the crash. A few years later, I started investing again. So that was in 2015, but I mostly did single family for a few years, uh, for a couple of years. And then I, and I said, you know what, I've always wanted to do multifamily. I'm getting, get back into it. So last year we started buying more properties. So that's awesome. Thank you for that uh, quick overview. So you were influenced by your, by your dad and got into uh, your first deal in 2008. That was an 18 unit, did you say? Yeah, that was as a property manager. I was managing somebody else's 18 unit in 2007. And then it was a triplex for me. I, I got a, I did a house hack with a triplex. House hack. So how badly did the recession affect you then? Well, fairly bad after it didn't happen right away for us. And I don't know if that was the same way in Utah. So I run, I was at the time running a handyman company and I had 13 employees and everybody was working overtime. And so I was doing pretty well paying out like $12 an hour and getting paid uh, 65 an hour with 13 people working all day, every day. My net was pretty significant at the time because you're not paying anything else. And those people, the people that were working for me started getting less and less work as slowly the contractors and builders all became handymen as well. 
and the homeowners started using handymen a little bit less. Plus, they had me at 65 an hour for a long time, me and, and my employees. But after some time, they started to have choices of $8 an hour, $10 an hour, $12 an hour, $15 an hour, $20 an hour. Then here I was sitting at 65. And then there was a couple people charging like $1 or $200 an hour. And so I just kind of got lost in the mix. So how it affected me really is one of my tenants um, lost their job. One of my tenants was my employee and I couldn't give them enough work to do. And so slowly I had it pretty rough where my tenants couldn't pay me enough rent and, and I wasn't making nearly what I used to be making, what I had been making. And when you're used to having, a, you're young and you haven't learned everything that your dad told you to do, I was used to spending a certain amount of money and, and that amount of money was practically gone. So I, mm. I did a deed in lieu on that property and was afraid of real estate for a few years. Well, it sounds that way because you didn't get back into it until about uh, 2015. And at that yeah. point, were you doing single family houses or what were you doing at the time? And yeah. what strategy were you flipping, wholesaling? Good question. So my dad and I went to a tax, we always did tax deeds. And so that was what we got back into is, is going to auctions, uh, live online auctions and purchasing properties in different states for a cheaper amount of money. And then we would fix and flip them mostly remotely and sell them for a profit. And it wasn't, it never took very, it usually didn't take very long to sell those properties. So you might have it sold in three days or one day or eight days, most of the time. So you buy low, sell low. So you're making some relatively good money. And why did you decide to shift gears and get into multifamily? I mean, why not just keep doing what you were doing? There's two reasons. One is that I always knew that multifamily was the way. I always knew that. Uh, when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in 2006, he said that he made his wealth through multifamily. And then in 2007, I started managing them. I managed somebody's reposition of a property and helped him make a million dollars. And so I always knew that's where we were going, right? Um, but I had this, I don't know what it was about it, but I felt like I had to somehow re-graduate back into multifamily. I had to somehow like cut my teeth on a few single families in order to be, you know, worthy enough to go back into multifamily. So it was just a, it was just a mindset. It's just where I felt comfortable at the time is that for some reason I thought I've got to do single family for a couple of years and then get into multifamily. I wish I never thought that, but I did. Well, we'll get back to that. I'd, li I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you would do differently uh, because both you and I's path were a bit uh, twisted and could have been a little more direct, I suppose. So you decided that, that you really wanted to be a multifamily uh, and for various different reasons, you didn't get into it sooner. We'll get back to that. But so you decided to get a multifamily. Why though? I mean, I know you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. What was wrong with the current strategy that you were working on? Why not keep doing that? Why shift? Good question. There's two reasons. Besides what I already talked about, there's two other things I can really think of. Number one is that the, at the tax deed auctions, they got so over, this was like Broward County right by uh, Miami. And there was people from different countries just coming in. There was a negative cash flow or whatever. There was negative uh, interest rates in Japan or whatever. And so there was a lot of money pouring into bigger markets like Miami-Dade and New York, kind of close to where you are. There's a lot of money coming there. And so number one, the competition got so difficult that it's like 
different people didn't care how much money they were making. I was buying at 30%, selling it at 60% just in days. And now I can't even buy it at 30% because people knew that they could buy these properties in Broward County for 112% of what you could buy them at the MLS itself, like after looking on the inside. But they knew that if they bought enough of them at the time, this was in the end of 15, 2015, at the time the rents were so much that they could buy a property that might be worth, let's just say it's a condo, a one bedroom condo. It makes 1200 a month for the rents. And you could easily purchase this condo for 30 or 40K on the MLS. So if they spent 45,000, a little more than it was even worth, now they can still cash flow because their, their numbers for how much money comes in versus how much they're spending on the property meets their metrics. So that was one reason. Number two is even if you're making a little bit of money, when you're doing it with single family, it's like a paycheck. It's like you make a little bit of money and then you, you spend it and then you make some and then you spend it and then you make some and then you spend it. And sure, sometimes we would double our money in a few days, but it wasn't significant amounts of money and even still there's, there's taxes. So when you look at everything that you're doing and you kind of feel like you're in a rat race, working a job, flipping houses, that's really what made it say, I just, I can't keep doing this. I've got to find a way to, number one, correct the taxes. And number two, do one thing and have a residual income from it. That's funny. You mentioned the word uh, rat race in the context of real estate investing. I, I, I always thought they were mutually exclusive. I had a similar experience flipping houses. Like, my gosh, I just created my own rat race. Never really got out of it. Now, speaking of rat race, at the time, did you still have your handyman uh, uh, business at the time? Or what were you doing professionally or were you doing this full time at the moment? In 2015, when I started flipping in, on tax deeds, I was a project manager for uh, another company that was doing uh, large reconstruction, basically from hail damage on large properties, million, multi-million dollar projects. I was just managing those. Mm, that's awesome. That's great. So you shifted to multifamily to try to get out of that rat race. And so what, what happened? How did you go about tackling that whole thing? Step one is I knew that I needed to get into commercial multifamily and I knew that that started with five. And I wanted to be able to start telling people that I was a commercial multifamily investor, but I tried to get into the step one, just just make it happen, make it so. And so we, we bought a fiveplex on mm. owner finance. We put down 20%, the owner carried back 80%. And because we didn't have the credibility yet. You say this on your podcast all the time. You flip 300 houses, so why don't you why can't you qualify for a, a you know one of these loans? It's the same thing. You have to qualify for the one the first time. So we did a owner carryback on that one. And so that was step 1 just to say that we were in multifamily. Then we bought some more multis, a small like twoplex, fourplex, fiveplex, and then we got into syndicating after about a year of holding those. Yeah. So talk about that transition, right? So it sounds like you had some amount of money. You started buying small stuff. A lot of people have that ability. Some some don't. Uh, eventually, everyone has to get into the syndication somehow if they want to scale it at all. What was a major surprise as you went from what you were doing to syndicating? Many major surprises, to be honest. And it's not to scare anybody, but it's just to let us know that there there's a lot of differences. 
One of them is when you buy these larger properties and you have a brand new entity that's purchasing those properties, a lot of times you actually will have to put down a security, uh, some type of a deposit. It's not a security deposit, but a utility deposit. And that can be a big chunk of change, the twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Like one, all of a sudden you're writing a check for twenty five thousand dollars, and you never knew that you were going to have to do that, you know. Or, for instance, some insurance carriers make you pay twelve, fifteen, or eighteen months of your insurance at all upfront. So prepaid insurance, all of a sudden you pay fifteen months of of insurance, which is another you know twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Yeah, because you got to raise that money. You need yeah. that money at closing. Yeah. Yes. And so we, we actually took a mentorship and we were not told about those two costs, you know, those two. And they're big. I mean, that's easily the smallest amount for the, just those two things would probably be 40K. On the high end, that's $100,000 that you didn't budget for if you're going into your first syndication and you weren't told that. So those are big surprises. How did you get into that whole thing? I mean, some people really think that the idea of asking people for money is so foreign. How did you overcome that? How did you approach that? Yeah, so that was actually pretty odd transition for me. When I was in single family and people kind of approached me and said, hey, can I put some money with you? It seemed to make a lot of sense because I was already used to the single family I felt like it was safe. I knew what the risks were, you know. So I would take the money and and reimburse them with interest and then pay them at the end. And that's kind of gotten normal. So I thought at the time that because it was easy for me to understand how to get money, I actually wouldn't ask for money. I would offer an opportunity. But it, I knew it was fairly easy for me to get that money when we needed it for a project. I thought it was going to be really easy going in a multifamily, but I actually had to you know, have a mind shift change to be able to do that because it was not as comfortable anymore to offer the opportunity because I wasn't personally as comfortable with the opportunity. So it took a little bit of time to be able to start offering that. And actually, it took me uh, probably two deals, one and a half deals to, to learn to feel really, really comfortable about it. Yeah, confidence is is key, and uh, as as you said, it really depends on how people react to you. And one of the things, uh, the objections I always hear is that you know, how, how do I get the experience when you're starting from scratch? How would you respond to that? How how can someone quickly build up, you know, credibility even though they have very little experience or none at all? Good question. Let me tell you what I did, and that was I went to smaller properties. That's what made me get the confidence. Our first one, yours was a 12-plex. Mine was a 16-plex. Our very first uh, syndication was $1.2 million. We qualified for the loan on our own, and we only raised 300 k That's how I did it. That's not how I recommend it, though. I recommend that somebody else gets into the proper size right away, but to align themselves with an operator, that it makes sense. So, to focus on one thing that you're already good at. Most people that want to get into the multifamily, they're going to be really good at wholesales, which means that they're good at negotiation and they're good at finding those deals. And if that's what you're really, really good at, you should go and negotiate and find a deal, but align yourself with Michael Blanc and say, you know, this is our track record. This is how much we have 
in property doors and this is what we're going to do when we come into this property. So you're just aligning yourself first with a good operator, which gives you the most amount of credibility with a broker or a seller, which allows you to get that size right away. The 150 units that you wanted, you got it on your very first try, which makes it safer because I, we don't maybe want to get into a rabbit hole, but I 100% believe that you're a lot safer getting 150 units than you are at 15. So you may as well be safer and be aligned with somebody. So that's one of the two ways to do it. And the other way is to, to go in either passively yourself or raise equity from your friends. So if you don't have the track record, a lot of people are not going to be wanting to give you money for your deal just because it's your first one. So you just kind of go and say something like, hey, Michael Blanc and I are closing on this great opportunity. And, you know, my role in it is to manage some investors and I'll be on the general partnership. And if you want to be part of this opportunity, you can put in anywhere from 50 to 250,000. Would love to be a partner with you and Michael Blanc's going to be running the show. And so now all of a sudden you have the credibility of somebody who has a track record and you're raising the money. So instead of having to wear like six different hats, because you're really running a business, you found a way to wear one hat. It's just a raising money hat or it's just a finding a good deal hat. And then you are partnering with an operator who can allow for the other five hats to be worn. So this is great. So let me get this good shade. So the one thing I heard you say is the first step, which you kind of glossed over, is you said there was a mentorship. So it was an education component. And then the second thing you said is really consider joint venturing or partnering with people, especially when you're when you're starting out. So I, I like that. Anything else that you did or recommend for people to kind of jumpstart that career? Only thing to pull out of that that you hadn't already said, which is have a mentor and to align yourself. The only thing that you hadn't really pulled out is also to, to focus on one of the components of the business at first. Focus really, really well at raising money or finding the deal. Don't worry about everything else. Get really, really good at that. And then after you've aligned yourself with this team, you'll have the ability to go on your own and just bring those teammates in. So if you were raising money before and you were less on the finding the deal, maybe a finding the deal person will find a raising the money person and you'll be a really good partnership. Now you talked to me earlier about one of the things that you did is created a meetup early on. Talk about why you did that and the importance and the impact that's had on your business. Perfect. So the question of why did I do it comes from being new to a city and hearing your network is your net worth and a few people saying, hey, you need to go and meet with other people that are in real estate and I didn't know how to find them and somebody suggested meetups. So I started looking at the meetups and I, and I found out that, well, I have kids, Michael. I didn't, I didn't mention that, but I, I've got a couple children. So I found out that most of these meetups were meeting when I needed to be doing homework with the kids. So I started a lunch club and that was for one, because I needed a network and it was number two is because, you know what, if I kind of lead this group and I know that if it's at for two hours in the middle of lunch, in the middle of the day on a weekday, the people that come will most likely be already active. So that was the reason why I did it. I needed the network and I knew that being the leader of the group would be better for me. And then the second part that you asked is, what has it done for me? So in that group, and I've so far raised $4.4 million just from that one group that meets at lunch. And, and that's over the last 
less than two years so far. Uh, we've raised more than $4 million from, from our friends in that small group. Uh, well, it's not that small, but it started out small anyway. And we have raised quite a bit of money from it. So that alone has changed our trajectory. And because of how impressive that group is, so I'll just be honest, I got flown out by Meetup headquarters to Meetup headquarters to speak for the top organizers. So I was one of the top eight organizers in the world, over 220,000, speaking for the top 150 organizers in the world in several countries. So because that Meetup became so popular, it kind of put me on the map and helped me like nationally, people know me, but regardless of, of how uh, impactful that is nationwide, at least it put me as a leader in my community. So I'm one of the most well-known people in Denver and because I have the highest attended meetup group in Denver and then I've raised money. So that's been extremely helpful for my business in, in all aspects for sure. All right. So I think there's a few more than one listener here that might be interested in to, to learn what you did here. So obviously you kind of, you're kind of good at this thing now. Can you talk about some of the things you did that, that made that meetup so successful? Yeah, so there's a way on the meetups that can you can hack to be able to become really popular really really fast. Ooh, and the meetup hack. All right, here we go, guys. Yeah, so this the main one, the main one and you have to do it well. You have to execute it well. But what you'll do is you'll look at all the other popular meetups. So you're just brand new. You're starting a brand new meetup. No one's ever seen it, no one's ever heard of it, and that's fine. Now what you'll do is you'll reach out to one of the most popular meetup group organizers in your city and you'll reach out to another and another and another and you kind of plan the next few meetings and or you'll have you'll reach out to all of them to be on a panel. Either way is is successful. It's just how much time and attention. What you'll do is you, what you can do with meetup is you find that one organizer that's the most popular and then you go into his own group. Go back into his meetup group. And you can easily click on the members of that group. You click on the members and all of the members pop up. And then you can organize it in any way that you want. So I like to organize it in most recently visited. So the people that are more active are the ones that I want to see first. And I will right click on their photo and open it in a new tab. And I'll do that with a couple hundred, the last 200 people to visit that page. I'll have these tabs open all the way across. And well, I've already got that person speaking at my group. And so then what I do is I go and read each of these 200 profiles. And it's not, you don't read a lot. You just kind of see, okay, this person's into wholesaling. It looks like they've been doing it for two years. So then you open up the message and then you say, I noticed that you've been doing wholesaling for a couple of years. That's great. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. Are you by chance going to see X person on Thursday night? And they'll say, oh, I didn't know X person was going to be speaking on Thursday night. And then your response, and you have to like rewind this and play it a few times if you're really going to do this because most people read much farther into what I'm telling them and they think that I'm writing a whole bunch of stuff. I'm really only writing hey, I saw you were into wholesaling. I'd love to talk to you about it. Are you going to go to that event where 
X is going to be speaking. So if Michael, Michael, if you had a, a meetup group, I would hack your system by going into the active people in your group. I'd right click on all of them and I'd see one of them says that they own 200 apartments. So I'd, I would say, well, that's impressive that you have 200 apartments. Love to talk to you about that sometime. Are you going to go see Michael Blanc on Thursday? Oh, I didn't know Michael Blanc was going to be speaking on Thursday. Oh yeah, he is. I can send you the link and I'd love to talk to you just for a minute or two about your 200 units. That's your conversation, but with 200 people that all follow this famous person. And I'm speaking because you're having me visit your, your meetup. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I've invited yeah. you to come to my group to, mm -hmm. to do a presentation. And then I will reach out to your own followers first and tell them what's going on. Then I'll go to somebody else's apartment meetup and I'll say, Hey, man, I don't know if you're going to that uh, event where Michael Blanc's coming. It's, it's free. I'd love to talk to you about what you're doing. So you're hacking into another group of apartment investors. Or, for instance, if you're this, there's so much about this that can be beneficial. But perhaps if I had somebody coming to speak and a brewery was hosting us, then I could reach out to all the wholesalers. I could reach out to every wholesaler group and say, are you going to this famous wholesaling thing? And I could go to all the breweries too, any meetup group that says beer and this, uh, wine and cheese, whatever. And I'd just be like, hey, are you going to that brewery event? Um, you know, I'd love to talk to you about whatever you're doing, you know. And that's the main of all the six hacks that, that I think are the most impressive. That's the one that, that can change you from having Nobody come to your very first event to having 60 people come to your very first event. That's freaking awesome. I love that. And what's your format of your, of your meetups? Uh, do you have speakers? Is it largely networking or what, what do you actually do during the meetup? So my meetups, I run Denver Apartment Network and the format there is usually meeting at a restaurant. And the first half hours networking and then I have a speaker for about 30 or 40 minutes and then the last half hour or so is networking. That's very similar to my lunch club. The lunch club quickly grew. I thought that it would have 12 to maybe 30 people. I, was, I dreamed of having it 30. Now we've never had less than 40. Well, we haven't had less than 40 in a very, very, very long time or over a year and um, we've had up to 176 and the three times that we had the most, over 100 and something people, those were more around networking, but I can't just have networking every single time. So those were about networking. And then actually on the one that had 176 at lunch, that, that one, I'll, I'll share with you how I did that because that was the biggest one. And that I actually went into my own LinkedIn profile and I personally connected with every entrepreneur that I could find. And when they accepted my connection request, I told them about the event. I, I basically said, hey man, I noticed that you're in entrepreneurship. I, I bet you're going to that huge entrepreneur event. Let me know, I'll, I'll see you there or let's plan to get a drink. And so that's what I did is I reached out to entrepreneurs, had an entrepreneur event and then reached out to them and said, I'd love to see you there. And so that's how we got the biggest one is, I probably sent that same message message on LinkedIn to, I don't know, 600 people or so and had 176 show. Do you charge people for these lunches? Are they free or who pays for them? The attendees pay for their own lunch. Um, it is free other than that. 
and I don't accept sponsors for the lunch club. Gotcha. Now, what is your follow-up? Uh, obviously, you said you raised $4.4 million with this, so you must have some kind of follow-up mechanism where you're actually doing the money raise. What, talk about your rhythm or your methodology for actually raising the money from these meetups. Perfect. So there was not a follow-up for the first few million. There was nothing like that. It was just people that wanted to be involved in what we're doing. And a lot of some of that is from single family. So some of those are from single families as well. That's just the total amount that I've raised from that group. And as far as our follow-up system, we've been using constant contact. And that is kind of like a CRM that allows you to move investors from stage to stage. So we have a database. Right now, it's about 200 and let's call it 230 investors total. And what we'll do is we'll send them an email first off when we have a deal. And we'll just send them an email and we might get around 30 or 40% of them respond and like watch our webinar, which is step two is the webinar. And then after the webinar in our, I think I said constant contact. I want to make sure that's the right thing. Called. Could be Mailchimp. It doesn't matter. One of the okay. one of the email systems. Yeah, it's it it's could not be, could just it's not just Mailchimp because it, it's it's more of a CRM. Uh, okay. That you know Mailchimp is just for sending out the mail, and this has more of a CRM system. But the one we use, you kind of just like a Trello board. If anybody's familiar with Trello, you move people from left to right. And so it'll tell you that you have a certain amount of days to call them after they've attended the webinar. And so you'll, uh, you'll give them a call. And if they say not on this deal, then you drag them into the not on this deal. And it just pulls them back out of the system. If they say that they'd like to look at the private placement memorandum, then you drag them into the PPM. And when they get dragged into PPM kind of neat, it automatically sends them an email with a PPM and a link to the deal package. And then it gives you another, it then puts them in another row that tells you when you have to contact them and follow up and say, hey, did you get a chance to read through the PPM? Uh, do you know how much you're going to be putting into this deal? And then you just kind of keep pulling them through the screen through the next level. And it allows you to have some of these things automated where you're really, you're really only selling the person that wants to be sold. You're really only talking to the person about an, an opportunity that you already know they want to be a part of. So it's not like it isn't very scary or anything because you have it kind of that way. Now you're raising money at a, at a much higher level. However, I'm wondering whether once someone could start raising money in the same way that you're doing it now, typically in early phase, you're doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings, which is very time consuming. And typically yeah, that's what people do. Now, what you could do is start something to kind of meet up and start creating an email list. And to what degree are you raising money one at a time versus just doing what you just described? In other words, is it really necessary to now have one-on-one -on -one meetings with people? Could someone theoretically skip that one-on-one -on -one time and just do what you're doing right now? I'm, I'm thinking as clearly as I can through that. And almost everybody that's invested with me, I had a sit down with and talked about that deal with almost everybody. Everybody, we've so far just done 506B, which most of your listeners should probably know. This is with your buddies. This is your friends and family. 506B, your buddies, people you know. 
so we have a good relationship with them. However, I have had to sit down for lunch with almost every single person and talk to them about what, what it looks like, talk to them about some of the risks. First, once I've sat down with one person one time, they're investing in our other deals. So we have some people that are, you know, their third time with us. We've got, a, we've got two deals closing right now. We've got some people that are coming in to, on these deals right away, and, but I won't have to sit down with them again. So to answer your question, I believe that I believe that this doesn't take away from having to have some one-on-ones. I don't think it solves that problem all the way, but it allows you to have another level of credibility because you either like you you have a pop or, or like me I'm running this group, this lunch club and people come to it every time and they get some value out of it. And because I'm in front of people there is another level of trust because more people can know me, more people can see me, more people can understand my personality than they would if I was just attending the group. I'm in front of you, so you, ha- you see more of me. I believe that that helps, but I just I wish that it could solve the one-on-ones, but I, I don't see it really solving that, unfortunately. That's good. No, that's a, that's great feedback for people, right? Uh, and that's typically how things are done is on one-on-ones and people then struggle. How do you scale that model? And, and you're at that point, we're doing the same thing where it's all about growing your list and then getting into, and then of course, engaging with that person, uh, getting them in a meeting or on the phone or on a Zoom call uh, and then putting deals in front of them and following up with them and prodding value. So that's really valuable feedback. I also love your meetup hack. And, and speaking of meetup hack, I think you have some kind of free giveaway on this meetup hack. You want to tell people about that? Because it was pretty cool. Yeah. So if you want to see the five other top six things that really changed the trajectory of my meetup and you're a listener now and you really are planning on starting your own meetup and making it grow, I do have a giveaway. It's just the six things that made my meetup, you know, the top eight of 220. I think that's the 1% of 1%. Um, those little hacks that really help, you just text the word meetup to triple five triple eight. So it's there, it's not a seven digit number. It's just five 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 eight 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 six digits total. And um, then that just gives you a link, and you can click on the link, and and that's that's a downloadable PDF. So you can do whatever you want with it. It's it's free. That's awesome. Any other parting wisdom from you to help people do their first deal or or maybe even scale what they already have? Yeah, to scale what you already have, offer more value in your space. So either by doing your meetup or doing a podcast or sharing on your own Facebook profile wisdom of things that you're learning, that's what's really going to attract the most amount of people to to partner with you on your deals, either whether they're finding you a deal or bringing you money, which are the two lifebloods of the business. You need them both. So add value. Find your way to add value. If it's not a podcast, if it's not a meetup, then at least find a way on your own social media to help other people get to where you are. The more you give, the, the more that you're going to receive for sure. That's great, great wisdom there, Adam. How can people connect with you? Uh, realbluespruce.com if, if they want. I have a podcast. It's called the Creative Real Estate Podcast. Feel free to find that if, if you want. It's mostly about syndication. And uh, realbluespruce.com is my company. 
that's where you get my email. That's where you can find more about the podcast and other things that we're doing. Yeah, that's realbluespruce.com. Great podcast. So Adam, thank you so, so much for coming on the show and all the resources you're putting out there to educate people about multifamily passive income. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Michael, for having me. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to the next time. All right, guys, I uh, hope you were writing some of this stuff down or remembered if you're in the car or at the gym or something. Uh, I just love the three elements of getting started. And there's a common theme, obviously, which is education. Every one of my podcast guests always talks about the importance of education. And, you know, there are a lot of programs out there that can help. Uh, we have ones called the Ultimate Guide to uh, Buying Apartment Buildings. So you can find out more about that at themichaelblank.com forward slash products. We also have coaching and we have live events, but really find someone that you resonate with. If you think that you multifamily is for you, and then it's time to invest in yourself. That's the best advice there. Number two is really about joint venturing and being clear about what you're good at and what you love to do. And, and Adam mentioned uh, two kinds of people. One, the, the guys that are deal guys or finding deals, analyzing deals, the more analytical guys. Uh, and if you have the ability to find deals, that's hugely valuable, right? Then find someone, a partner or someone who will partner with you to raise the money. And we have that with the deal desk, right? So if you find us the deal, we will then raise the money for it. And that is at themichaelblank.com forward slash partner. You can find out about that as well. Also, if you have a money raiser, okay, let's say you gravitate towards raising more of the money, that's fine too, because you can bring us that money and we'll work you into the general partnership for bringing in that money. So it's two great ways to get started. And of course, you can always passively invest with our with our deals, themichaelblank.com forward slash invest for you to find out more information about that. But the joint venturing, we, a lot of guests talk about that and it's really, really powerful to accelerate that timeline. And the third thing is, is the meetups. And this is really why I wanted to, Adam has, has got so much great information, but I want to drill down on the meetup stuff and his, his six hacks. You can get that by texting meetup to 555-888 and uh, get his, his hacks for meetup. And it's just a great way to establish credibility quickly and build your network. And he's already raised $4.4 million out of those deals. And uh, it's just a great way to go. So definitely consider that as a strategy for you. All right, guys. So that was awesome. If you love the show, leave me a review on iTunes. I love seeing those. It also exposes the show to more people. And uh, I'm looking for people who have, you know, essentially quit their jobs with multifamily investing. So if you're one of those people, you like to come to the show, contact me and let's get you on the show. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. You guys take it easy and catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.